Hello and welcome everyone to the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right for our The Right Rising podcast. My name is James Downs and I'm a senior fellow and head of the Populism Research Unit at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I am also a researcher based in Hong Kong at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, where I research and teach on courses related to European politics and also comparative politics. Our Populism Research Unit as CAR has a wide range of experts that focus on the populist radical right ranging from Germany, Italy, France, Norway, and the United Kingdom through to Hungary, Poland, Georgia, and the Ukraine, amongst many other countries. Our experts are international leading scholars and political commentators with a focus on a number of different Western European and Central Eastern European countries. In this episode, our first episode for the podcast from the Populism Research Unit, we'll be hosting this episode and interviewing two of our experts from our unit today. We'll be looking at the latest developments in Italian politics, alongside the different forms of populism in Italy, the political and economic impacts of COVID-19, and then examining the electoral volatility that has historically underpinned Italian politics. So it's a great privilege for me to introduce our two guests today. Firstly, we have Dr. Valerio Alfonso Bruno. Valerio is a political analyst and senior fellow at our Center for Analysis of the Radical Right based in Italy. Valerio also recently joined the Center for the European Future, CEF, which is an Italian think tank that focuses on the possible futures of Europe and the European Union. Valerio also collaborates frequently with a number of other institutions, such as the ISERI, the Autoscuola di Economia e Relazioni Internazionali of the Catholic University of Milan, and also at the Observatoire de la Finance, a Swiss think tank based in Geneva. Alessio Scopoliti, is a PhD candidate in politics at the School of Sociology, Politics and International Studies at the University of Bristol. Alessio is also a doctoral fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right and is based currently in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show, Valerio and Alessio. It's great to have you both on. So our first question to start off with is a bit of a, a backdrop question about Italian politics. So Italian politics has often been characterized as having incredibly high levels of electoral volatility. Italy has had something like an astonishing 67 governments in the post-World War II period since 1945. Why then has Italian politics tended to be so volatile? First of all, thank you, James, for, uh, for asking us. As concerning your, your question, uh, I would say it is mainly related to the kind of uh, electoral system, uh, Italian electoral system, which is mostly proportional. So, for example, right now in Italy, according to the, the latest polls, we have, um, for instance, uh, small parties like uh, Italia Viva, which was established a uh, few months ago by, by Renzi. It was in the Partito Democratico earlier, which is polling around uh, more or less 3%. So uh, it's uncertain if uh, we'll be able to, um, you know, to, to pass the threshold. Uh, the same goes for other parts like um, the party uh, established by Carlo Calenda, which uh, is named Azione, also polling uh, a bit more than 3%. So these kind of parties, when they are into coalition, um, let's forecast, for example, on center-left coalition with the Partito Democratico and Movimento Cinque Stelle, you can imagine uh, the possible role of the party of Renzi or Calenda within this coalition 
will make the overall uh, stability, you know, very precarious. As you said, a lot of uh, volatility. And unfortunately, this has always been the case for, um, for Italy. Right. So, um, first of all, thank you uh, for having me here. And I would like to agree with Valeri here. Um, of course, um, when you're talking about um, crisis of governability, like uh, when we see this astonishing high number of 67 governments uh, since the uh, 1945, of course, it's, it's not always just one explanatory factor that uh, determines this kind of phenomenon. We have to take into consideration several elements, like, uh, as Valerio said, the kind of electoral law, which uh, I think for historical reasons, uh, since the, um, the Constituent uh, Assembly, they wanted to avoid that one party or one leader might become too powerful because of the previous Italian dictatorship experience. Also, the type of constitution that we had, uh, a presidential republic, of course, would be more stable than a parliamentary republic, and uh, the type, of course, of party system. We have, there are many political parties representing many different ideologies, so we have a multi-party system and not have two-party system like those seen in UK and USA. Um, of course, uh, these, there are also social, economical, cultural factors that determine uh, this kind of phenomenon. But uh, if we just combine these kind of elements, uh, of course, according to the Italian constitution, the Italian electorate does not elect the government, but the members of parliament. Eventually, by having a proportional or a mixed majoritarian electoral system, many parties win seats in Italian parliament. And unfortunately, or hopefully, according to the kind of perspective, no single party and not even a coalition usually managed to gain enough seats to govern until the natural end of the parliament. Um, instead, what usually happens is that Italy has been ruled by grand coalitions, and these grand coalitions are usually formed by parties belonging across all the political spectrum uh, from left to right, which after election day, uh, they can decide to form a new government with the political forces that have just been elected. And since parties uh, will typically hold very different views, it's not hard to see why such coalitions often have many difficulties in agreeing on legislation or about the political agenda of the government. So eventually, these disagreements often end up in crisis. Thanks a lot, Alessio, and also Valerio, for your, for your answers to the first question. Just very briefly, I think it's really interesting you mentioned both of you about you know the multi-party system, the grand coalitions, this this wider complexity, and it makes me think about other you know countries in Western Europe, such as the Netherlands or even Belgium, where there are these you know, coalition governments comprised of you know many different types of political parties, and also again very widespread patterns of electoral volatility when we see the fragmentation and how many different parties there are in the Netherlands. So for UK viewers listening to this episode, this is probably something that you might not be so used, used, to, used to kind of dealing with in terms of the fact of tending to have a two-party system with the Conservatives or Labour, particularly in the Westminster government there. Of course, devolution in Britain, particularly in Scotland, for example, has kind of changed some of these traditional patterns. But it's very, very, interest, very interesting for our UK viewers to hear a, a bit more about that. So moving on then to kind of the main focus of our episode, when we're looking at populism, I think myself and also viewers who will be listening to this episode will, will have heard a lot about, you know, the rise of the five-star movement and also about the league, you know, what exactly are these different types of parties and also the other party, Fratelli d'Italia, led by uh, Giorgio Meloni, uh, more on the populist radical right. So what then is the meaning of populism in the Italian political context? 
I think that Italian populism uh, does reflect the well-known uh, definition made by Kasmuda, uh, which is the thin ideology by stating that society is divided into uh, these two antithetic, antithetic groups. On the one hand, the pure people against the corrupted elite. Indeed, uh, when recent literature on populism seeks to create a common denominator in order to identify populist parties tend to label as populist all those parties that usually position towards the poles of the left-right political spectrum. Hence, we are going to talk about radical parties, which are usually identified as populist, and mostly um, radical right-wing parties. However, um, I know that you mentioned uh, Five Star Movements, the League, and uh, Brothers of Italy as populist parties, but when we are addressing the Italian political context, I think it might not be so easy to distinguish which party is populist and which party is not. Because not only the radical parties, but also mainstream or established parties have experienced at least once in their political life populist characteristics. And of course, I'm referring to um, Silvio Berlusconi's era with Forza Italia uh, since 1993, or even so from the right wing and also from the mainstream left wing with Matteo Renzi leadership uh, within Partito Democratico uh, from 2010 until 2019, when he, after he, uh, since he funded, uh, until he funded. Uh, um, Italia Viva. So I think that these two kind of examples can be defined as a sort of top-down populism. I mean, a kind of a kind of populism which is supported by the people, of course, and it, it claims to represent the people, the will of the people, but originated over a top-down mobilization. On the other hand, when we explore the radical parties, we can definitely identify as populists the Five Star Movements and Brothers of Italy and the League. And in all these parties, I think that the common denominator among them is the bottom-up building process that these parties experienced. However, I think that these parties also show some differences, especially between the Five Star Movements and the other two radical right parties. On the one hand, I think that the Five Star Movements embrace populism more like as an ideology. Um, I mean, uh, in a sense that the reason that of this party is to fight any established institution, or more in general, the corrupted corrupted political elite from the local, national, to the supranational level. On the other hand, Brothers of Italy and League, I think that they embrace populism more like a communicative style rather than, rather than as an ideology, because I think that their ideology is already well-defined around concepts of nativism and authoritarianism. Yeah, I agree with the, the, the points that um, Alessio was, um, was mentioned. It's not easy at all to, to distinguish about the variety of uh, populisms populism in, um, in Italy. Uh, there are really different kinds, um, radical right populist parties as, uh, as Lega, uh, Fratelli d'Italia, which has completely reversed uh, right now the, the power position with uh, Forza Italia. So right now, uh, the party of Meloni is polling at around 15-16%, uh, while uh, Berlusconi's party for Italia is around at uh, 6%. And uh, let me, uh, for example, um, let's take the, the, the referendum that will be held in Italy on the 20th and 21st of, of September, which is about uh, the possibility to cut almost one-third of the um, members of the Italian parliament. And uh, um, it's, it's quite, you know, um, astonishing to me that, uh, of course, there are parties like uh, Movimento Cinque Stelle, uh, party like the, the Lega, which are you know, in favor of, of cutting the, 
member member of the the, the parliaments. Uh, which uh, what strikes me um, on the other hand is that uh, other parties like uh, Partito Democratico or former member of this party like uh, Enrico Letta, which is a, a former uh, Italian president of the Council of the, the Ministers, uh, they are in favor uh, as well of cutting, you know, the, the member of the, the parliaments. So you may ask why uh, the PD, which is notoriously not a, a populist party, is in favor, you know, which are the reasons behind, you know, being in favor of such a populist move? Because according to most of the analysts, this is just, you know, frustration towards the, the elites, uh, towards the, the political elites, punish them to cut them of uh, one third. But according to me, behind the, this, this move from the Partido Democratico, for example, from uh, Enrico Letta, there are uh, also other um, kind of, you know, strategies, I would say. And as uh, Alessio was mentioning, um, I, would, uh, I would say a, a top-down approach to, to politics. Uh, recently, uh, Enrico Letta, he, he wrote a tweet where he said, uh, the less uh, parliaments we have, probably the, 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 the better the quality will be. Which, uh, honestly, I, uh, I don't see the, the, the logic behind this, uh, you know, this statement. Unless you, you prefer to have uh, an approach to, to politics, which is a top-down approach, let's call it uh, based on expertise, let's call it uh, even technocratic. So I would say um, it's possible to, to, to mention uh, populist parties in Italy, uh, but also other kind of movements, let's call them uh, more technocratic. They are against party politics. They want to. They are in favor of, of for different reasons, of course, to cutting the, the, the number of the overall number of uh, member of the Italian parliaments, but for different reasons. So, which which makes you know everything much much more complicated. But we have to distinguish between this top down approach to politics and this bottom up approach. Um, and again, I agree with, uh, with Alessio. Just said it's it's really complicated to see all the variety uh, distinguish all the variety of populism uh, in, uh, in Italy right now. Thanks a lot both for those fascinating answers to that question. I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper and ask you both about what do you think will be the likely result for the, for the outcome for the constitutional referendum? So I think that the, the result of the constitutional referendum would be uh, uh, that it will pass. There is a wide consensus regarding uh, this referendum. Actually, it is an historical um, and ideological political fight uh, in Italy. It was argued many from since many years uh, the goal to cut the number of members of parliament. And um, of course, I think that this referendum is clearly um, a product of Italian populism. By the way, it did. This referendum was an initiative of the Five Star Movement, which goal was to fight the caste identified by the parliament and the privileges of the, of the members of parliament. And of course, the main goal of this party since 2013 is, and I quote, uh, to open the parliament like a can of tuna. All right. So uh, there is a great consensus to, uh, from the electorate to support this referendum. Not only the Five Star Movement, but also the Democra Democratic Party is supporting this, uh, this referendum. So all the majority, all the government is supporting it, but not only the majority, but also uh, the opposition from the right-wing coalition is supporting this referendum. 
uh, I agree with um, with uh, Alessio. It's quite uh, you know likely, uh, even more. It's very likely that the the, the referendum will pass. Uh, according to the the latest poll that were available till the two, if I'm not mistaken, the two of September, like seventy percent uh, of the people would uh, would vote to in favor of the cutting the, the Italian parliament, the member of the parliament. Um, for example, I, I want to mention that um, today uh, there was an um, interesting article about um, Roberto Saviano, which is an important uh, uh, intellectual uh, leading writer. He, he wrote a few years ago a bestseller book, uh, Gomorrah. And he has always been a, a champion of the um, uh, center-left of the Partito Democratico. However, there was you know, like a, a carol... Um, uh, between Saviano and uh, the establishment of the Partito Democratico, with uh, Roberto Saviano heavily criticizing, uh, for example, Zingaretti or Franceschini or other leaders of the PD, because they were following, uh, you know, the Movimento Cinque Stelle and the other party of the opposition in this populist, uh, you know, move to cut, uh, you know, to reduce the number of the MPs in uh, in Italy. And, and it's so it's awkward because the the, the, the this establishment of the Partito Democratico they reply to Saviano it's like you don't see our strategy uh, we always been you know defending you from you know the attack of the of Salvini of Meloni but this time really you don't see um, our reasoning but honestly in this case I like Saviano I really don't see the reasoning why. It, the PD is following, you know, the um, following the Movimento Cinque Stelle on this uh, on this strategy. Thanks a lot for that analysis. So, Alessio, you just mentioned Casmuda uh, a few moments ago about this kind of definition of, you know, probably the most widely accepted definition of populism that's out there. And so, this actually got me thinking about a Twitter exchange that I saw yesterday taking place. So, just for those viewers who are tuning into this episode. We've recorded this on the 11th of September. So that Twitter exchange was yesterday on the 10th of September. And this is a Twitter exchange between uh, Valerio and also Casmuda. And so I saw that Valerio, you had a very interesting Twitter exchange uh, yesterday with Casmuda. And you were kind of discussing the mainstreaming of the far right and, and also the weakness of the mainstream. And what struck me, Valerio, is you mentioned that the center-left Democratic Party has kind of adapted to several five-star movement positions. And then last time, in contrast, you kind of mentioned that it was the five-star movement also adapting to, to Lega, to the league. And so I found that very interesting overall. Do you kind of want to, to say anything, either of you, really briefly about, about this point? Yeah, I would say it's, it's very interesting because in the, um, in the former, you know, it's a coalition government, uh, which is more like a, a name of a contract, uh, between the the Lega of the Movimento Cinque Stelle, the, the all the favors, let's say, were were uh, with, uh, with the Movimento Cinque Stelle. But in a few months, the the Lega and the ability of Salvini was really able to cannibalize, to to completely jeopardize the the Movimento Cinque Stelle with a um, politics against the. Uh, illegal uh, immigration to to Italy and uh, on several dossiers. 
so it's um, the just before the pandemics the the, the movimento 5 stelle also with the change of the leadership with uh, di maio leaving the secretariat with this uh, role of uh, uh, leader of the movimento 5 stelle was really in um, in a negative you know moment for the five star movements so it, it comes a little bit as a surprise first of all that uh, the partito democratico decided to 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 agree um, to stay with the, the Movimento 5 Stelle. Of course, there are uh, electoral reasons uh, um, before that, before that, uh, before this uh, decision. Um, however, I really don't see why um, all this necessity to, to adapt, to follow the, the Movimento 5 Stelle in a you know, domain which is really not within the, the overall scope of the Partito Democratico. Why this? Um, the decision to, to follow the, the Movimento 5 Stelle in this populist, you know, domain, uncertain uh, area. Um, unless we really have, um, as uh, Alessio was mentioning at the beginning of the, of the interview, a cultural and, you know, like, uh, sociological uh, reasoning. It's really the, 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 the Italian electorate moving towards, you know, more uh, radical kind of populism. Otherwise, it's not really you know, easy to, to, to explain. However, according to the, the latest poll, even uh, also because you know, the, the COVID with a little bit changed the, the, the cards on the, on the table, the Partito Democratico has been you know, gaining some, some support. Uh, right now, it's polling uh, around the, the 20%, something similar for the Movimento 5 Stelle. So this uh, awkward, I would say, coalition between uh, Movimento 5 Stelle and Partito Democratico, which was really mm, not considered by many analysts as able to survive. Maybe because of the COVID, I, I don't know the answer, but right now, if you take also other uh, parties like uh, Italia Viva, established by, by Renzi, Sinistra Italiana, according to the latest poll, they will even be able to, to win against a... Uh, uh, radical right or center right uh, coalition because I would say the, the coalition formed by the Lega and Fratelli d'Italia right now is no more a, a center right because the role of Fratelli d'Italia is very is really marginal with six percent. Sorry, of Forza Italia, it's very marginal with six percent, uh, uh, even less. So, um, uh, I mean, perhaps the, the move was not so 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 bad. Uh, but the fact is that, you know, for sure the Partito Democratico decided to follow the Movimento 5 Stelle on, uh, on a populist trend. Uh, let's see if it will uh, pay in the, in the future. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Valerio. So, Alessio, do you want to come, come in on this? Yeah, thank you. I would like just to say a few things. Uh, it was really interesting to read the uh, exchange between Cass and Valerio on Twitter about this 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 topic because um, I think we can compare to uh, kind of a political context uh, really, really interesting two different political contexts which was the first Conte cabinet and the second Conte cabinet in a sense that we have the same prime minister but two completely different governments and as Valerio said the Partito Democratico was affected by the Five Star Movements because the expectation to build a new a new alliance to form 
between the, the First Star Movement and the Democratic Party was to manipulate the First Star Movement since basing on the experience of the previous government, since the First Star Movement was manipulated by um, the astonishing capacity of Matteo Salvini to uh, determine the political agenda of the government during the first uh, Conte cabinet. Uh, I think that the Democratic Party has failed with this intent. It is more the Five Star Movement who is manipulating the Democratic Party now, and uh, we can see it now with the next referendum. Kind of on a similar line or a similar tangent, a question that I had next, kind of, you know, not, not being a, a specialist in Italy or not knowing a, you know, a great deal on Italian politics that I had was about kind of the overall electoral failure or kind of lack of fortunes in the last couple of years for the Italian five-star movement. So why do you think, firstly, that the Italian five-star movement is in electoral decline? And are there any hopes, electorally speaking, for the five-star movement in the future? I mean, do they, for example, do they, have, do they still have a younger vote base? that would stay with them in the future, that could kind of act as a kind of buffer for, for the party in the future? So um, I personally think that um, the, the electoral decline that Five Star Movement is experiencing now is because this party, this movement, has failed its experience at the majoritarian, as majoritarian party uh, forming an Italian government. Uh, what I mean from that is that since the Five Star Movement started its political journey as a candidate, in domestic elections, it has always experienced the watchdog role from the opposition, trying to impact the political agenda of the Italian government. And indeed, when this five-star movement uh, was in the opposition, it has always pushed its political narrative around the ideology of the uh, pure people versus the corrupted elite by claiming that they were uh, the expression of the general will of the people. However, since it joined the government, and I would like to remember that the First Star Movement is the majoritarian party, and the Italian Prime Minister is indeed a representative of that, of that movement, it has slowly betrayed some fundamental principles of the party, like, for instance, uh, the maximum limit of two terms to be elected, or the use of the parliamentary immunity, for instance, and uh, many other ideological fights, like uh, passing from a strong eurosepticism to a soft eurosepticism even voting in the European Parliament for the current European Commission. So despite this party was able to collect electoral consent, working from the position, uh, especially from young people, especially people coming from the south of Italy, uh, thanks to all the promises that they were delivering in their political narrative and political agenda. Actually, I think that right now, this party has failed its experience in the government. And I think that the next domestic election will be significant for the future of the party. Yes, I agree with the, the, the points of, of Alessio. Uh, overall, the Movimento Cinque Stelle, uh, let's say, betrayed its uh, electorate. Um, about the, the, the future, um, as I told you earlier, right now the, the, it is slowly, you know, let's say, recovering. Um, it's polling around 20% uh, the Movimento Cinque Stelle, so which is, which is not so bad. Of course, it's very important to consider the the, the possible future role of, uh, of Giuseppe Conte, uh, the Italian Prime Minister, um, which is you know it's really not clear um, so far. Of course, as as we we will know, uh, there was a rally around the flag effect. 
we didn't know um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, um, many people were, uh, you know, uh, felt, you know, reassured by by Conte, even if he had to, to take, you know, some, you know, very, very unpopular uh, uh, decisions. Mm, so uh, uh, I would say it's not, you know, very, very um, easy to make, a, you know, a forecast concerning the the future in, in Italy. Uh, we started this uh, interview talking about, you know, volatility and instability. Um, so it, it really will uh, will depend on the um, yes on the fortune of the Movimento Cinque Stelle. Um, I mean, they really can have now the the, the possibility to to uh, to play uh, and to play well uh, this uh, you know the, the coming months. Um, the Lega is um, is struggling. Okay, you can say, but uh, Fratelli d'Italia on the other side, it's, it's gaining a lot. But um, as I told you uh, earlier, um, uh, right now the two, let's call them the two coalition, the one which is the Movimento Cinque Stelle and Partito Democratico, uh, and uh, the other one, the, the radical right, because it's not more possible to talk about center-right uh, coalition, in my point of view. They're really, uh, at the moment, they're really neck-to-neck. So, uh, as I said, it really will depend on the on Conte. It will depend on you know uh, other consideration, like for example, the how the pandemic uh, evolves in the in the future. How the Italy or how Italy reacts to to this? Right now, Italy, in comparison to to other countries like France, like UK, like Spain. Uh, the first month, like March, April, uh, was a very bad situation in, in Italy. But right now, Italy, in comparison to those countries, is doing well. We don't have uh, the, the case of uh, COVID-19 uh, as much as in Spain or as in France. Um, so it's, it's, all, um, it's all to see, I would say. And let me tell you that it will also depend on the... Um, uh, the result of the the election in the in the U.S. in the United States in the U.S. because the in case of another victory of uh, of Trump, this could be you know, a sort of a possibility to, to galvanize the both Fratelli d'Italia and uh, Lega and uh, the party of Salvini. So it also depends on the, on that we have to to see to the other side of the the Atlantic. And to wait to November and, and wait what will happen. Thanks a lot, Valero. It's really interesting that you mentioned about, you know, you mentioned the rally around the flag effect that, that we've seen, you know, within the COVID 19 pandemic. And actually, you know, Valerio, both you and I, you know, wrote that piece a couple of months back now for Rant Media, where we, our main argument was that obviously there's a lot of complexity in terms of whether the far right or the radical right has declined electorally speaking, at the comparative level. But you know, we do see that radical right parties, particularly the, part, uh, the RFD, the Alternative for Germany, the Alternative for Deutschland Party, has seen you know, a reduction in the vote share. And a number of far-right parties have seen a reduction in their vote share across Europe here. So clearly, the COVID-19 pandemic has you know, not just had a profound effect on Italian politics, as, as you were just both mentioning, but also has had a profound effect 
on European politics as a whole, both in Western Europe, Central Eastern Europe. You know, we saw the so-called enabling law, the enabling act that was put into place by the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban of the Fidesz Party. And then we've also seen this play out at the EU level in terms of the European Union uh, Commission level as well, with the you know the EU Council summit that was kind of held recently. That was also kind of a very highly politically charged and, and volatile occasion. So, really briefly, I was just wondering if either of you could just very briefly explain about the perhaps the differences in Italy between the north versus the south. Let's say that there are some listeners listening in right now. Um, Alessio, you just mentioned about Five Star Movement, for example, getting a large share of voters from the South. I was just wondering, is this still this kind of big historical divide between between these two different parts of Italy from, from a regional perspective? And now the reason why I kind of ask this is that it's quite interesting when we look at some modern kind of populist parties like the, the RFD party in Germany, which arguably has kind of a more extremist ideological section in Eastern Germany when you compare it to the more kind of moderate populist radical right party structure and ideology that that this type of party has in in Western Germany. So just wondering a little bit more, perhaps Alessio or Valeria, what what your thoughts are on that? So, um, yeah, of course, there is a great uh, distinction between the North and the South of Italy uh, in terms of the kind of electorate that we have. there is a, according to the last uh, elections in 2018, um, there was a, a really big support from the uh, for the five star movements from the southern regions, uh, because as I've already said, of the several promises that the five star movements uh, said in the in their political manifestos, like uh, giving a an universal wage uh, uh, according to the citizenship or other. Um, policies in order to uh, redistribute the wealth to the poorest uh, people. In the north, we have a different kind of electorate, more linked to business, to industry, to factory. There is, I would say, also a traditional uh, um, electorate linked to the league, because we have to remind anyway that the league uh, was previously named as the Northern League. It was a regionalist party. It was a party funded on classical cleavages, and now it has changed. It has developed to a new national perspective. So um, I would say that the great success in the north was due, first of all, to the kind of electorate they addressed, uh, the right-wing coalition, to the business, uh, liberalism, and, uh, of course, against immigration. On the other hand, I, th- I, thought, I think that there is a really strong part of the electorate in the north which is still linked to um, the previous uh, party, regionalist party that was the league, as Northern League. Um, yes, I agree. There is a still a huge you know, difference between um, the northern side of Italy and, uh, and southern Italy. Um, from Napoli, right now, my, my perspective is in uh, most of, you know, Young citizen here, or young Italian from the southern part of Italy, they you know harbor a lot of uh, frustration. Um, uh, I know personally many people that uh, had to 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 leave uh, Napoli and other parts of, of southern Italy to 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 
go to north of Italy or even, you know, like uh, abroad to European Union, to Australia, to so it's kind of, uh, you know, try to find a fortune abroad, uh, which is very, very sad, but it's, uh, it's always, you know, for historical reason, uh, it's not something, you know, too easy to, uh, to, to fix. And it came a little bit as a, as a surprise uh, that um, in the last years, the, the Lega, which, as Alessio said, uh, originally was, uh, was named Lega Nord, had uh, quite a big success in, uh, in many you know, areas of, uh, of southern Italy. Right now, according to the, to the latest you know, polls, it seems uh, really in decline here in the, in the south. Uh, going like to three percent of support in, uh, in, in overall in, in southern Italy, and uh, anecdotally speaking, uh, the, the, the last few times that uh, Salvini uh, came to to Napoli to Castel Volturno, which are areas with a lot you know Im- illegal immigrants from uh, from Africa, the most of the Napolitan the Napolitans. They completely you know, rejected him. They didn't want him to, to come and to speak uh, against you know, the, uh, you know, the possibility to strategically link uh, immigrants with, uh, with the pandemics, with you know, uh, the possibility to, to spread the virus. Um, so I would say, yes, there is a, a huge, you know, still a huge divide between the north and the south. Uh, um, the Movimento Cinque Stelle tried to you know, capitalize on, on this, on the frustration. There are many, you know, most of the, the people of this movimento, right now it's no more a movimento, I would say it's a classical party, the, the Cinque Stelle. Uh, part, most of the establishment come from the, from the south. If you take, for example, uh, Di Maio, if you take uh, Roberto Fico, they are all from you know, uh, southern Italy. Um, I don't know if in the future the voters from uh, from southern Italy they will give their uh, el- trust in electoral terms to again to the Mento Cinque Stelle, but for sure I mean they will not give their trust again to uh, to Salvini and to to Lega. Thanks a lot, both. That that was really fascinating what you both mentioned about the North versus South divide, and I definitely learned a lot more there, and I think our, our viewers will also learn a lot more as well. So two very difficult questions then to finish off this podcast episode. So the first question for you both is just, again, very briefly, what would be your predictions for the future of populism in Italian politics, let's say after the COVID-19 pandemic is over? And secondly speaking, again, a very, very difficult question. Can you make any predictions about the upcoming 2020 US presidential election in November? between the incumbent, incumbent President Trump and the challenger, the Democratic candidate, Joe Biden. So for viewers, again, we're recording this episode on the 11th of September, and it appears that Biden is still quite far ahead or considerably ahead of Trump in the polls. However, recent opinion polls appear to show a slight reduction in support for Biden across a number of states. So I know that this podcast episode is focused much more on Italy as well, but I think it's also quite interesting to perhaps generalize this a little bit and you know if, if you can both you know make some perhaps a brief prediction of what you think could happen there answering to the first part of this question uh, according to the literature basically i would say that populism uh, tend to survive and develop alongside of the development of crisis 
It can be a, a migratory crisis, an economic crisis, uh, or as what we are witnessing nowadays, a pandemic crisis. As such, I would say that it really depends on how the Italian government will handle the pandemic. Despite there is a general disappointment towards the government uh, on how it organized the, the beginning of the new academic year in school, I think that the pivotal step will be how the Italian government will handle the next moment of crisis. Because I think it will be impossible for the government to prevent new pandemic crisis, new waves or period of lockdowns. But the real challenge for the government will be how much the national health system will sustain the impact of new waves and how much the government will invest into infrastructure that will support Italian lifestyles during the next waves. But again, it's really interesting question because we have to consider also that populism currently is surviving both in the government and in the opposition. So it will really depend which kind of populism will survive after the COVID pandemic. Uh, on the one hand, we have the populism as an ideology, uh, people versus elite, and on the other hand, populism as a, a communicative strategy. Um, answering the second, uh, the second question um, regard regarding the upcoming 2020 US uh, presidential election, um, if it, I think that if, if it wasn't for COVID-19, uh, Trump would have a really good chance to win the next election. However, I think also that the advent of the COVID uh, uh, has revealed many social and cultural contradictions in American society, um, and the social tensions emerged by COVID was the detonator of social tensions provoked by institutionalized racism, for instance. Uh, however, I think that in this new political context, uh, um, I think it's quite similar to the previous presidential elections in a sense that the electorate, the electorate is significantly, significantly polarized and Trump is currently, I think, the most charismatic leader in this competition. So I would even think that uh, the Democrats might win again the popular vote, but we don't know if they will definitely win the presidential election. Um, I can also see that both candidates, they have similar and at the same time antithetic narr political narratives. On the one hand, Biden is arguing that Trump is a threat for democracy, while Trump claims that Biden will be a threat for law and order, right? Uh, but I think that if Biden wants to have more chance to win this election, he should shift his political campaign more about how Trump administration handled the pandemic crisis and talking more about the imminent economic recession. Yeah, there's a very good point from, uh, from Alessio. I completely agree. Uh, populism and, uh, you know, crisis. When you have crisis, different kind of, you know, typology of, of crisis, it's always, you know, a fertile uh, uh, field uh, frame. Uh, for populism to, to develop. So as concerned Italy, it's very you know, uncertain. Um, it's all to see, you know, like um, probably with the economic, you know, uh, problems uh, with frustration rising at the parties like um, Lega Nord and Fratelli d'Italia, they could have, you know, the, uh, an upper hand, you know, on trying to to strategically, you know, blame on the establishment, uh, the Movimento Cinque Stelle, the Partito Democratico, also against the immigrants, like uh, a war between the poor. But also, I would say, um, as concern uh, crisis, I, there is not only um, populist parties to, or movements to benefit from this. Uh, for example, I recently read a, a very, very interesting article from a professor of the University of Stockholm, 
Mark Reinhardt, who wrote the classification of the policy making in the European Union. So uh, if it's true that populist parties, they benefit of crisis, it's also true that in terms of uh, output, in terms of, of policy, effective policies, uh, as concerned the European Union, um, crisis can also be uh, an opportunity, as we have seen since 2008 with the global financial crisis, then with, then with the, um, the euro crisis, with, with Greece, the Troika, and, and going on with the migratory crisis uh, till arriving to the, to the COVID-19. So these are a very uh, unique possibility, those crises for uh, populist parties, but also for uh, technocratic uh, actors like the the European Union and uh, its institutions. So both of them, they can benefit. As concerned, the question uh, regarding the the next uh, election, the, the U.S., uh, I agree with your point, James. It's um, it's complicated to make a a forecast. Okay, according to the latest opinion polls, seems that uh, Trump has uh, reduced a little bit, you know, uh, the difference in, with uh, with Biden, but um, yet uh, also because the the U.S. electoral system very 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 being very very uh, sui generis and complicated it's not easy at all to to make a forecast uh, i i agree again with what alessio said if there uh, there had not been the the covid-19 i would have bet without you know any doubts on on trump uh, gaining uh, a second electoral you know, mandate in this case i would uh, i see this more like neck to neck uh, I don't agree with, you know, analysts who say, no, Biden, uh, it's favorite um, because of the polls. No, uh, I think it's very, very, you know, uh, as I said, uh, a race on the same level between the two candidates. So there can be a lot, you know, of last minute uh, changes, um, something that we, we don't expect right now. It's going to be very, very interesting. Really interesting that both of you mentioned about populists or kind of populist politicians, populist parties really benefiting from different times of crisis or crises. And we've definitely seen that kind of Alessio and Valero, you were kind of mentioning about the refugee crisis from 2015 to 18, perhaps benefited more the populist radical right. And also we saw a so-called mainstreaming effect with a number of perhaps mainstream mainstream center-right parties moving more to the right on issues like immigration and sociocultural issues and trying to also benefit from this and perhaps mimic the rhetoric of the radical right. Whilst in the 2008 to 2013 economic crisis, perhaps we saw more kind of populist radical left parties benefiting, you know, in Southern Europe. If we think about, at the time, Syriza was seen as a radical left party or, for example, Podemos in Spain, which is very interesting as well. So I think that's kind of nice for listeners to kind of you know, get their teeth into a little bit that populists on the right wing and the left wing can benefit from different types of crises. And of course, it's a bit more complicated than I've just made it out to be. I just tried to draw some general trends, kind of patterns or observations there. But again, we have to look at this on a, you know, on a case, case study basis rather than looking at the overall comparative level picture. But again, it makes me think about some 
recent studies from very renowned professors in European politics, such as Hans-Peter Crazy from the European University Institute, and also Takis Papas, who's also written on, on these types of you know, populism and, and types, of, types of crises. So fa- thanks a lot, both Valerio and Alessio, for coming on. Where can, where can viewers you know, find more of your research? Do you have a Twitter account or kind of a website that viewers could, you know, could find that your, your latest research at all? Well, I don't have a Twitter account, unfortunately, but you can follow me on LinkedIn or there is a um, uh, University of Bristol profile where you can see my research interest and also my latest uh, uh, blog contribution with the Center for Analysis of Radical Right. I uh, recently uh, discovered, uh, let's say, Twitter uh, only in um, last February. Uh, So I try to keep it uh, updated with the latest uh, uh, research um, projects. And uh, I find it quite uh, useful to be also in contact with uh, other scholars or or analysts. So there... um, in case somebody's uh, interested, then you could find uh, most of the the research I I try to work on. Thanks a lot. So thanks to our two fantastic guests today from our Populism Research Unit at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, both Valerio and Alessio. So we're going to be recording more episodes of our Populism Research Unit in the coming weeks ahead, looking at countries such as Germany. In, in the next edition, and then we're kind of going to build on from there. So our Populism Research Unit at CAR, at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, we've got a really wide range of experts that focus on different aspects of the populist radical right, and also populism as a whole, like you've seen today uh, from listening to both Valerio and Alessio. So we've got other experts looking at Germany, Italy, France, Norway, the UK, Hungary, Poland, Georgia, and the Ukraine, so all across Europe, which is really important, of course, not to just focus on Western Europe, but also Central Eastern Europe and also the other regions. Incredibly important when we're looking at these different regional trends and, and patterns for populism. So finally, our experts, you know, they're really internationally, international leading scholars and political commentators on a number of these different Western European and Central Eastern European countries. So thanks a lot to our listeners for tuning in today. See you all soon in the near future. And of course, as always, take care, everybody, during this incredibly difficult time with the COVID-19 pandemic. So take care, everybody, and see you all soon. Thank you very much.